Welcome to Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause. I'm your host, Scott, with Uncle Ian. This is a very special episode because it is the first episode that we are able to record together in the same room. Today's very special episode features two Southeast Asian dictators, Ho Chi Minh versus Pol Pot. Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause is a history podcast obsessed with history's biggest dictators. We have created a knockout competition to determine the single most significant dictator of all time. Each episode features a matchup of two dictators where we discuss the life and times of each leader. The loser of each battle is eliminated. The winner remains in the contest to be named history's biggest dictator. Uncle Ian, please tell us about Ho Chi Minh. Thank you, Scott. Ho Chi Minh, the meaning in Vietnamese is he who enlightens, was born in 1890 in rural Vietnam. He became Prime Minister of Vietnam between 1945 and 1955 and then served as President of Vietnam until 1969. Also at various times, he was Chairman and First Secretary of the Workers' Party of Vietnam. While we know him as Ho Chi Minh, he was actually known as several names throughout his lifetime and we'll meet a few of those names along the way. We won't go through all 50 of them. His father was a teacher and a local magistrate. He was also a Confucian philosopher. He was mistreated by the colonial power who we'll meet shortly and he was actually considered for promotion into an administrative role by the colonial power but he refused it because he didn't want to work with that colonial power. Who was the colonial power? That was France. France had taken over Vietnam in the mid-19th century. The justification for them doing so was to protect the Catholic people who were living in Vietnam at the time. They were primarily there as missionaries. Subsequently, the French added Cambodia and Laos to make up their colony of French Indochina. They did that because there were certain products in Indochina that they were keen to get hold of. Um, such as rubber and rice and tin. They were also attracted by the Mekong River in the south and the Red River in the north, hoping to be able to use those rivers to navigate inland to build up trading networks. The French were very envious of the success of Hong Kong as a trading hub and wanted to replicate that in Vietnam. So Ho Chi Minh was locally educated. There is a story that he was expelled from school. We've heard that with a few of our previous dictators, Scott, as you'll recall, because he was supporting some of the local peasant protests. An analysis of the timeline, though, shows that he wasn't actually at the school at the time of the protests occurring. So there doesn't appear to be truth to that, but it was a myth that perpetuated and actually turned out to be very good for his image to have been seen to be protesting even during his school days. After finishing his education in Vietnam, he wanted to see the world. So he got on board a French steamer, worked as a kitchen helper. That was in 1911. Found his way to the US in 1912. Worked for General Motors for a time. Worked as a baker. It gave him a priceless opportunity to observe the discrimination against the people of Afro-American background in the United States. And that helped frame some of his beliefs about racial equality. He was impressed by the fact that the African population and the immigrant population in America was able to vote, unlike his own, where the domination by the French was pretty thorough. And that was a lesson that he wanted to bring into play, as we'll see at the end of the First World War. For a while, he continued his life experience. He landed in England, variously worked as a snow sweeper, a boiler operator, a pastry chef. Being in England also gave him an opportunity to continue learning about oppressive colonials because he was able to watch and see how the Irish and Indians, for example, were were treated by the British. Along the way, he learned how to speak and write English, French, Russian, and Chinese. He was also a voracious reader. Tolstoy, Zola, Dickens, Hugo were among the authors that he enjoyed. By 1917, he's in Paris, met up with various French socialists. One of the things that attracted him to socialism was the similarities with the Confucian background of his family, a sense of community 
a sense of equalisation of wealth and opportunity and a distastefulness of greed were things that attracted him to a socialist way of life. He was in good company in France. There were over 50,000 Vietnamese in France working as servants, uh, factory workers, or there as students. He was still in Paris at the end of the war and uh, he'd added to his life experience working as a photo retoucher and also working as a freelance journalist. He was remembered at the time as being painfully shy, gentle, timid and very skinny. So not really looking like dictator material. He was under 100 pounds and shorter than 5 foot. He was 4 foot 11. He was tiny. Although he was said to have these piercing eyes that stare directly into your soul, which sounds, if I remember correctly, exactly what they said about Lenin. So the French Communist Party were inspired by the Bolshevik Revolution, led by Lenin, who we've met earlier, as well as meeting with the French Communists, Ho Chi Minh, then known as Tan, but also at times he wanted to be known as Kwok, which is the Vietnamese word for patriot. He also met up with Korean revolutionaries that inspired him to be a founder of the group of Vietnamese patriots in Paris. What helped make Ho Chi Minh, as we now call him, into a leader of the resistance movement were his efforts to secure a place for Vietnam in the treaties that ended the First World War. During 1919, all the talk in Paris was about the 14 points put forward by President Woodrow Wilson. One of the key elements of that was self-determination, so allowing countries to make up their own mind about how they could be governed. Ho wanted to get the permission of the French authorities to present petitions to the world powers that were in Paris in 1919, negotiating the Treaty of Versailles and the other treaties that officially ended the First World War. He wasn't allowed to do that. What did happen, though, is it increased his status among the Vietnamese people because he was making that effort and also attracted the attention of the French security forces. A couple of the elements that he was seeking at the time, freedom of association wasn't guaranteed in the Vietnamese colony at the time. They also had no representation in the French parliament. And one of his key phrases was that in colonial Vietnam, there were more prisons than schools. In 1923, he wanted to learn more about communism. So he went to Moscow, actually got a job with the Comintern, the Communist International, which I've always thought of as the Soviet's efforts at world domination. That included in 1924, he traveled to China, then back to Moscow, back to Paris. By 1928, he was in Thailand. By 1930, he was in Hong Kong. So he's seeing lots of different regimes, meaning lots of resistance groups. The meeting in Hong Kong was important because that was the founding of the Indochina Communist Party, other Vietnamese communists. He's then back to Moscow, so very strong Soviet influence in his background, studying and teaching at the Lenin Institute. So that always looks very good on your communist CV. <laughs> By 1938, he was sent on a mission to China to advise the, the communists. At that stage, China was still in, under nationalist rule. From China, he returned to Vietnam in 1941, by which time he's into his 50s. He'd adopted the name Ho Chi Minh, and he became the leader of the independence movement, the Vietnamese League, also known as the Viet Minh. After returning from Europe and America, Ho Chi Minh ended up in Thailand and he travelled around Thailand and parts of Vietnam dressed as a Buddhist monk for 10 years spreading communist propaganda. And it's a, the 10 year period, we really don't know where he was for 10 years and he's one of the only leaders that we, we don't know their whereabouts for a decade of, of his life. He fostered a myth that he was celibate. We know that's not true, but it played into his image of a man working tirelessly for his country. Shortly after that, Southeast Asia was invaded by Japan, so all independence bets were pretty much off until the end of the war. The Americans who were at war with Japan during World War II gave money to Ho Chi Minh to fund his efforts to overthrow the Japanese, which is an incredible irony. And it's a double irony in this episode because we'll meet that assistance again later in a different context. Immediately after the end of the war, the emperor of Vietnam abdicated. Now, he'd been subservient to the French, but was still a symbol of Vietnamese rule. His abdication at the beginning of September 1945 left an opportunity for the Communist Party to take over. So the Declaration of Independence helped form 
what they called the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. There were continued negotiations about the status of Vietnam within what the French were calling the Indochina Federation. And post-war Southeast Asia shows us that Britain and the Netherlands, for example, didn't have any long-term ambitions to keep their colonies. They realised that the writing was on the wall for their colonies. France, however, wasn't as keen to let go of its colonies in Southeast Asia, and that had some long-term effects. So one of the consequences of France wanting to retain its Indo-Chinese colonies was that by the time the Vietnamese and the, and the other countries within, the, within Indochina started working for independence, we had a new thing on the horizon called the Cold War. Anything that happened during the Cold War time, if it involved communists, meant that the US would want to get involved. We saw it in Korea and we're seeing it in Vietnam. One of the elements of the US involvement in Asia during the Cold War was that the McCarthyist witch hunts, the anti-communist witch hunts in the States, and actually had a big effect on the attitude of the State Department to employing people who understood communism, even if they weren't communists, that enabled the US to understand the position of the various warring parties. So the advice that the State Department was able to provide within the US meant that it was very much cut back as a result of the McCarthyist witch hunts, and that did actually put the US at a, at a disadvantage in being able to involve itself in Southeast Asia in an effective manner. At the end of 1946, the People's Republic of Vietnam had declared war on the French Union as the first step towards seeking independence. This grew into the First Vietnamese War. In 1950, Ho met with Stalin and Mao in Moscow. They agreed to support the communists against the French. That war continued until 1954. The turning point in the First Vietnamese War was the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. At that time, French soldiers, and there were over 10,000 of them, surrendered. And that brought the First Vietnamese War to an end. There was an agreement for a partition at the 17th parallel of latitude. Now, there's various reports on the amount of casualties that it took for this to come to pass, somewhere between 50,000 and 250,000, depending on which source you read. A, a very high cost. The Battle of Dien Bien Phu is an unusual battle because it was sprung as a trap by the French to finally defeat the pesky Vietnamese. And the Vietnamese had not read the script and they decided to win that battle to everyone's surprise and, and got their country back, or at least the northern half of their country, away from the French. So in 1954, as part of the agreement to establish Vietnam, there was going to be partition between the north and the south. There was 300 days free movement between north and south, and approximately 800,000 people moved to the south. They were encouraged by Diem, the leader in the south, um, and also by the, the local leadership of the CIA. And depending on who you ask, the reason for their move is different. Some will say they moved to escape communism. Others say that they moved, that a lot of the people who moved were Catholics and wanted to go down to the southern half of Vietnam, where that was more Catholic friendly. We haven't heard a lot about domestic politics yet because all the focus was on the, the war against the ruling French. From 1953, Ho and his fellow leaders did make an effort to implement reform. However, there was, in terms of implementing the agrarian reform, there was widespread repression. There were a lot of executions of civilians, possibly as many as 50,000. We'll never know the exact number, but certainly those who weren't supporting the regime in the north, either with their reforms or with their communist beliefs, were targeted by the regime. I expect that number could have been higher if not for the 300-day movement window. All the potential dissidents had fled the country. Yeah, exactly. French Indochina was formally dissolved in 1955. It was on the promise that there would be negotiations between the North and the South about reunification elections, with the United Nations being in a supervisory role. Ironically, the South refused to sanction the elections. One of the reasons was that they feared that Ho's popularity, as having inspired the war against the French, that Ho's popularity would lead to a communist domination of the whole country. So the US is watching all of this with interest. In 1956, the Second Vietnam War started. 
The French are gone by this stage. So the Second Vietnam War is about the Viet Minh, the Communist Army, fighting against the US. By the end of the 1950s, the North had started aiding a movement in the South, a communist movement in the South, that we now call the Viet Cong. They were originally set up at arm's length from the North, so it wouldn't look like the North was inspiring revolution in the South, but the longer it went on, the longer it was obvious that the North were funding that with money and arms and tactical support that they were receiving from the major communist power. And to people in the West, this was the start of what was called the domino theory. First Russia, then China, then Vietnam. There was a strong feeling that once Vietnam became communist, that that would mean places like Malaysia and Indonesia would become communist. And there was a strong feeling in the then underpopulated country of Australia that Australia would be next. So this this concept of a, a domino theory was also, and I know it's a sign of the times, but it was also called the yellow peril, was very strong in Australia in the 1950s and had a massive effect on domestic politics in this country. By the early 1960s, the, the Politburo in the North had some decisions to make which is more important, building up the North for the people living there or bringing Vietnam back together into a single country. There was a lot of dissension in the Politburo. Ho, even though he was into his 70s by this time, was still strong enough to insist that they wanted to unify Vietnam. There was a feeling in the North that the US was really only there as another colonial power. It was as bad as having the French there. By 1963, some 40,000 communist soldiers had infiltrated into the south of Vietnam. At the beginning of November 1963, the South Vietnamese leader, Diem, was overthrown and killed in a coup. While initially he had support from the United States, he'd gone a long way towards frittering away that support by alienating a lot of parts of South Vietnamese society, the most obvious of which was the resistance of the Buddhist monks. And there are a number of extremely moving photos of Buddhist monks protesting against the regime in the South by setting fire to themselves. And that had a strong influence on South Vietnamese opinion and world opinion. Once this coup happened at the beginning of November of 1963, it led to a power vacuum. That meant the US was going to have to do something. That was delayed a little by other events in November of 1963. And it wasn't until the middle of 1964 that the new president, President Johnson, got further involved in the Vietnamese situation. Quick fun fact about President LBJ. At the White House, he was asked by a reporter, Mr. Johnson, why are we in Vietnam? I don't know how to say this. And he pulls out his penis out of his pants and says, this is why. (laughs) He was a very weird bloke. He had a jet installed in the shower that was aimed directly at his penis that he called the jumbo jet. Well, he he was from Texas. And when Nixon got in, he said, get this removed right now. (laughs) So there was an enormous amount happening both in Vietnam and the United States at the time. After the overthrow of Diem, there was factional infighting in the South. The North lost its enthusiasm for any peace plan. In June of 1964, President Johnson, through channels, offered financial assistance and diplomatic recognition to the North. He wanted to try and close the issue out before the presidential election that was due at the end of 1964. Unfortunately, this was unsuccessful. So early 1965, US combat troops started arriving in the South. And at one time, that was as many as half a million combat troops. Not all of them US, of course, a number of other countries, including Australia, sent advisors and subsequently sent combat troops to Vietnam. In April of 1965, it escalated further. Ho obtained Mao's approval for Chinese support over 300,000 Chinese troops. The public line was that they were there to help repair and build infrastructure, but it did free up Vietnamese forces to engage in the combat fighting. The communist powers poured something over $20 billion into Vietnam at this time to fund armaments, and to fund infrastructure repairs from the damage that the bombing was causing. More bombs were dropped on Vietnam than the entirety of World War II in both Europe and Japan combined. Small countries copped a lot of firepower. Ho at this time was saying that he would only negotiate with the US if the bombing ceased and the US weren't prepared to make that commitment. Turning point in the Second Vietnamese War at the beginning of 1968 
was the Tet Offensive. The North decided finally to overcome the South by force. One of the reasons for the timing was Ho's failing health. They wanted to overcome the South, if at all possible, while Ho was still the leader in the North. Now, he's in his late 70s by this stage, failing health, suffering from diabetes. He would subsequently have a heart attack in early 1969. The Tet Offensive, with its 30,000 casualties and quite intense television and video coverage, finally brought home to the US people the true cost of the war in Vietnam. We've seen something in similar times with body bags returning from the Middle East, and the effect that that had on public opinion was huge. On the 2nd of September 1969, Ho Chi Minh died of heart failure. He is remembered as a writer, a journalist, a poet. In fact, his poems are still taught in schools and that helps reinforce the cult of personality that grew up around Ho Chi Minh. We've seen that with a lot of our dictators so far. You can still see the embalmed body in the Ho Chi Minh mausoleum. The pictures are in public buildings and in schools everywhere. They named a city after Ho Chi Minh. It was called Saigon when it was the capital of the South, but of course it's now called Ho Chi Minh City. There's monuments in a number of cities, including Moscow. And and my favourite is that Ulyanov in Russia, which is the birthplace of Lenin, is a sister city of Vin in Vietnam, which was the birthplace of Ho. That's very good. I like the fact they've been both preserved. Yeah, the, the, ma- the mausoleum is a nice element. And I think, Scott, when we further define what our, our dictator bingo looks like, we'll need to make sure that the embalmed body in the mausoleum is an element <laughs> that, we take, that we take into, a con- into consideration. Only one of our two dictators will end up being an embalmed body in a mausoleum today. <laughs> Just on the city, the change of the name from Saigon to Ho Chi Minh City. Saigon is the, is the major city in South Vietnam. So when they took that over changing the name of Saigon to Ho Chi Minh was a bit of a flex, you might say, on the behalf of the Vietnamese to demonstrate the fact that we have control of the entire country, including the South. And look at this, Ho Chi Minh City is um, is the new name of Saigon. Yeah, very much sent a message to the rest of the world, not just to the US, about, about the outcome of the Second Vietnam War. Officially, the Second Vietnam War ended in 1973 with the the Paris Peace Agreement. The US stayed in the South because the South at that stage was not self-sufficient. They were due to hold elections in 1975. They weren't held in the South due to Van Thieu appointing himself as military dictator in the South. North Vietnam said, no, that's not going to happen. They invaded, occupied Saigon and the South. And in 1975, in April, the symbolic end to the invasion by the North was the evacuation of the US Embassy, helicopters on the roof. And I can vividly remember watching the the footage of people scrambling to get onto those helicopters the day before the North Vietnamese march into Saigon. Couple of elements that followed Ho Chi Minh's regime. In 1978, Cambodia and Vietnam came to blows. There were border wars, and shortly we'll hear more about the effect of that on the country of Cambodia. That led, in 1979, to the Chinese invasion of Vietnam. We mentioned that in the episode that covered Deng Xiaoping. The Chinese were angry about the invasion of Cambodia. They were also angry with the USSR support that the Vietnamese were receiving. That led to a lot of the population fleeing and the the term boat people, we, we hear it now in a more recent context, but that was also a term in the late 70s for people leaving Vietnam hoping to find their way to another country where they could build a life for themselves. Ho's two successors were from the Communist Party, not as hardline as him, but ironically, they both came from the South. His immediate successor was Lai Duan, who ruled until 1986, and then Van Lin. He was in the right place at the right time because he was leader of Vietnam at the time of the fall of the Soviet Union. So he took that opportunity to restore the relationship with China and help rebuild Vietnam by restoring businesses, rebuilding temples. And in recent years, we've seen the Vietnamese people welcome tourists to their country. That was unimaginable even 20 years ago. So that now that tourism is a big part of the Vietnamese economy. So how do we remember Ho Chi Minh? The first question I wanted to ask myself was, was he a nationalist first or a communist first? My answer is he was a nationalist first. He wanted an independent Vietnam. Communism was the method to get there and to to ensure socialist security after 
independence. Like with Cuba, the Americans got themselves into a bit of strife because they confused a desire for communism with a desire for independence. The harder they tried to get in the way of communism, the the more the nationalistic fervor grew within that country and the more they wanted the Americans out of it and to be able to run their own affairs. The benefit of the communist approach meant that he was able to obtain assistance from the communist powers. Now, as we heard, he spent a lot of time in Moscow, so he learnt about communism as Lenin and Stalin introduced it. But being communist meant that he could call on support from the USSR and, at times, from communist China. In reality, in the 1930s, communism was the leading anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist, anti-feudalist movement, and that was more likely to result in independence. It also guaranteed getting a bit of money from... China and Russia. There was also some similarities with the different philosophies. Vietnamese and Chinese culture already recognised elements such as communal living, communal farming and shared spaces of ancestral worship. Each of those very very much lend themselves to the communist society that ended up being formed in Vietnam. Now the nature of the two Vietnamese wars means we We know a lot more about Ho Chi Minh as a leader, as an independence leader, and then as a ruler setting the priorities of the North going forward. We don't get to hear a lot about his domestic policies. We mainly look at him as a leader of the North and someone who, even to this day, is still revered in the North as the leader of, firstly, Vietnamese independence, and then secondly, Vietnamese reunification. Were you comfortable with that in terms of a biography of Ho Chi Minh? And seeing that photo of Ho with the with the, the old man the old man goatee, I won't call it a beard, when I look at that photo I think of the well known photo of Che Guevara. Mm. Um, in terms of its Uber presence. But it's it's interesting to look at the, the cult of personality around him and compare that to, to others. Now if he was still alive, would they have named Saigon after him? Interesting question. Not very Buddhist thing to do. Not very Confucian thing to do. That's that's not quite like a Stalingrad or Leningrad scenario or Duvalierville. <laughs> How good Duvalierville. Oh, I love it. It's time to introduce our second dictator for today's episode, Pol Pot. I'm just going to give a warning. This will be a particularly violent and upsetting episode. Pol Pot was the communist dictator of Cambodia from 1975 to 1979. Cambodia, as we mentioned, is a country in Southeast Asia. It borders Vietnam to the east, Laos to the northeast, and Thailand to the northwest. Pol Pot was born on the 19th of May, 1925, and named Saloth Sa. I'll continue to call him Pol Pot. Pol Pot was an alias he adopted, meaning potential politics. The potential is not that great. He was of mixed Cambodian and Chinese heritage, but spoke only Cambodian or Khmer and considered himself only Cambodian. Cambodia, like Vietnam, was a dominion of the French Empire, but Cambodia had a king, but the French were the real power. Pol Pot was born to a relatively prosperous farming family, like many of our communist dictators so far. He was born in a small fishing village in northeast Cambodia. His father owned nine hectares of land and employed workers on his farm, so they weren't poor. Pol Pot was sent to the Cambodian capital Phnom Penh, to live with his cousin Meek, who was a consort of the king. Um, he had many consorts that he enjoyed the company of. So Pol Pot trained to be a Buddhist monk for a bit and then went to Catholic school. So he was getting a mixed education. Most of the students were, were French or members of the Catholic Vietnamese minority that lived inside Cambodia. He was not academic and had to repeat twice. He spent time at the palace and at 15 years old had sex with some of the king's concubines. The sources describe these encounters as a sexual assault of the underage Pol Pot, although I'm not sure whether he saw these encounters that way. So in 1945, it is a very big year for Pol Pot. He travels to Angkor Wat, the incredibly beautiful temple complex in Cambodia built by the ancient Cambodians, and it inspires a political awakening. He sees the temples as a, an incredible Cambodian achievement and instills in him a, a nationalistic desire for independence from the French. Pol Pot travels to France to study in 1949 and he joins the French Communist Party despite finding the books of Karl Marx too hard to understand. 
He actually prefers reading the writings of Soviet Union leader Joseph Stalin and Chinese leader Chairman Mao. So what could possibly go wrong with those two? (laughs) Ah, All right. In 1953, Popot returns to Cambodia and to bring about a communist revolution. That's what he says. It might have had something to do with the fact that he failed all his school exams and lost his scholarship. And so Cambodia is involved in the first Indo-Chinese war to remove the French from the region. And Pol Pot joins the Viet Minh, which Uncle Ian mentioned earlier, a militant Marxist-Leninist group. Pol Pot hates the Vietnamese, actually. He's horrified that the ethnic Vietnamese are, are leading the organization and that Cambodians are given menial tasks. But he learned Vietnamese and rose up through the ranks of the Cambodian Viet Minh. In November 1953, the war with France was won and Sihanouk declared Cambodia independent. Sihanouk was the king of Cambodia. But in 1955, King Norodom Sihanouk abdicates the throne and then successfully ran for prime minister of Cambodia. But his victory might have had something to do with the fact that he arrested all of his political opponents and Cambodia becomes a one-party state. So through the 1960s, Pol Pot meets with Ho Chi Minh and Chinese Communist Party officials and was hosted by Deng Xiaoping, who you will know from one of our earlier episodes. Pol Pot creates the Communist Party of Kampuchea, better known as the Khmer Rouge. So Sihanouk is deposed in a coup by Lon Nol, who's backed by the Americans. And the regime of Lon Nol is not a friendly one, but the Americans are giving him money to keep out the communists. So in 1968, The Khmer Rouge launch an insurgency from the countryside to overthrow the government and Pol Pot slowly expands his territory. Throughout the 1970s, with the Vietnam War raging, the Vietnamese were crossing into Cambodia to avoid American attacks as they were traveling down the Ho Chi Minh Trail to get from North Vietnam to South Vietnam. So the Americans decided to start bombing these routes in Cambodia and half a million tons of explosives were dropped on Cambodia. And that helped Pol Pot sell his movement to the peasants because of their anti-American sentiment because half their country is being bombed by the Americans. So the communists, funded by the Chinese government, continued to take territory until in 1975 when they marched into the capital, Phnom Penh, and declared victory in the Civil War. One of the fascinating things about 1975 is that Pol Pot's regime later decided to announce that 1975 in Cambodian history was year zero, so that anything that had happened prior to that didn't matter anymore because the communists were now in charge. Yes, and when they get into Phnom Penh, they immediately evacuate the city. Two million people are forced to leave their homes and their belongings. No one knew what was going on. The leaders of the new government were kept secret. No one knew where they were going or why. They were told that the Americans were going to bomb the city. That was not true. The communists used child soldiers from the rural areas of Cambodia, and they were so deeply brainwashed. These children were completely without feeling, and their blank stares and their brutality terrified the populace because you have these robot children with machine guns. Pol Pot's year zero begins. The ideology with which he tries to run the country is insane it's based off Mao's great leap forward and he calls it the super great leap forward he attempts to build an entirely peasant agrarian society so they banned all money and all religion every single person is forced to work in the rice fields while being chronically underfed everyone is given the same matching clothes to wear and they killed anyone that was educated teachers doctors lawyers anyone that wore glasses You had to show your hands, and if they weren't calloused, you would be killed. And so the calluses proved that you worked with your hands and that you didn't do any intellectual tasks. They believed that having lighter skin meant you came from a corrupt class. So having darker skin was better because it showed that you worked outside. And to save money on ammunition, these people were typically beaten to death with hammers and other tools, or they were often buried alive in the killing fields. The babies of non-peasants were smashed to death on a tree. Approximately 2 million people were killed, one quarter of the Cambodian population. Pol Pot's famous for believing in the expendability of his populace, saying that keeping you is no profit and losing you is no loss. A couple of other elements about the reign of Pol Pot and his accomplices in the Khmer Rouge, depersonalising the population. You were not allowed to wear jewellery. You were not allowed to grieve 
for your loved ones. They even decided that technology was a threat to the regime. So they destroyed cars, destroyed refrigerators. One of the reasons that historians give for the destruction of the refrigerators is that if you can't refrigerate your food, then you have to keep growing it. So turning everybody into a a subsistence rice farmer. And a lot of that was based by Pol Pot's own experiences in the 1960s when he was living with the the hill people in Cambodia and looked at how they were living in a self-sufficient manner. And he wanted to impose that on the entire Cambodian population, or at least the Cambodian population that survived the regime. Yes, they did not allow access for any medicines coming into the country or to be produced in the country. Not only the murders, starvation, but a great number of people died from disease that could have been avoided. And they killed all the doctors, which didn't help either. Complete Western inaction occurred due to the anti-colonial and anti-war sentiment that took over America towards the end of the Vietnamese War. Western academics continued to deny the atrocities, despite refugees fleeing the country and telling the world of what was happening inside Cambodia. So Pol Pot had established an Orwellian nightmare for his own people, and the similarities with the novel 1984 are very scary. Instead of Big Brother, Pol Pot was referred to as Brother Number One. And instead of Big Brother is always watching you, the slogan was, the organization has the many eyes of a pineapple. The Khmer Rouge, like in 1984, even controlled who was to get married. There was complete control of personal relationships. Most communists wanted to control the means of production. Pol Pot wanted to control the means of reproduction. The Khmer Rouge soldiers forced couples to marry at gunpoint and forced the couples to consummate the marriage at gunpoint. Here's a story told by a Cambodian woman named Um Nit. At 16, she was finishing her morning's work in the field. The chief of her work unit turned up and told her she was to get married. And she knew that if she refused, she would be either imprisoned, tortured, and probably killed. So that evening, she was sent to a meeting room where the men and women were sitting in separate rows. A man's name was called, and she was pulled up, and they were married without ceremony. Her husband picked up his belongings and followed her home. That night, a guard came to check and patrol the area to make sure the newlyweds consummated their marriage. Her husband was convinced they were going to be executed, so tried to persuade her to run away with him one night. And Nit says no, and she says, I was worried something would happen to my parents if we ran away. He fled without her, and she never saw him again. She ends the story crying, saying, they killed my parents anyway, and brought back their clothes to me afterwards. Another Cambodian recalls, as a young child, soldiers bringing in a man and a woman blindfolded in front of a group of children. The kids were told that these two fell in love and became a couple without being ordered to do so. The man had his throat slit. The guards removed the woman's blindfold so she could see what happened. She screamed and the children all cheered. She was then buried alive. Most people killed were ethnic Cambodians, but there was a specific program to purge Cambodia of its minorities. The Chinese and Vietnamese were seen as successful and boasted many cultural achievements. So when in Saigon, Pol Pot said he felt like a dark monkey from the mountains. Like many Cambodians, Pol Pot's resentment of the Chinese and Vietnamese led to intense racism. Half the Chinese population of Cambodia was killed. The Muslims were also targeted. There's a Muslim population called the Cham or Cam Muslims. And the Muslims were prohibited from praying and wearing their traditional dress. They were forced to eat pork. And uh, this complies with the original definition of genocide as an attempt to eradicate a culture. Their cultural and religious leaders were killed and has left the Cam Muslims even today without their customs and rituals. The minority Vietnamese population was obliterated. Men who married ethnic Vietnamese were ordered to kill their wives. The entire minority Vietnamese population was killed. Following this, there was a purge of Cambodians in eastern Cambodia. They were suspected of being traitors to the cause. And so 250,000 people were killed in this purge. These people were considered traitors and guilty of being traitors and were said to have Cambodian bodies but Vietnamese minds. And you see how race gets conflated with guilt. Uh, They were seen as being guilty of a political crime, and so they were labelled as being Vietnamese. 
and that conflation. I recently heard a Western version of this. Uncle Ian, I know you're a huge fan of Kanye West. You didn't think I was going to get a Kanye reference in? Yeah, I don't know as much about him, but if he ever becomes a dictator of a country, I'll certainly learn more about him. Kanye 2024. The version of this involving Kanye West. Kanye West has very atypical politics for an African-American Los Angeles celebrity, we'll say. And for this, he was recently called a coconut, which I learned means black on the outside and white on the inside. And so that conflation with race and guilt exists in, in Western countries too, it seems. One of the most famous parts of the Khmer Rouge Pol Pot regime is a facility called S21, or Tall Slang. It is a concentration camp built for suspected dissidents. Ironically, given the treatment of educated people, it was previously a school. Most of the people that were sent to S21 were Khmer Rouge fighters. And so Pol Pot was so paranoid and he purged his party of all potential spies and traitors. S21 was one of 150 torture centers set up to extract confessions from political dissidents and spies. In reality, prisoners just made up confessions to end the torture. Of course, very few were actually committing these crimes. The interrogators needed to continue to acquire confessions to avoid being labeled traitors themselves and being thrown into the prison that they were running. There were 12,000 killed in the camp. 15 survived, and one of them was Chum May, who says, If those guards hadn't tortured a false confession out of me, they would have been executed. I can't say I would have behaved any differently in their position. So you see how the system maintains itself. It continues its work, even if its participants don't want to actually contribute to it. You either become a perpetrator or a victim. Many prisoners hadn't heard of the CIA. They were peasants from Cambodia. They hadn't watched any Cold War spy fiction, but many confessed to be spies working for them. Once a prisoner of S21 signed a forced confession, his wife and kids were then killed within a couple of days. Prisoners were drowned, raped, starved, had their fingernails pulled out, electrocuted, suffocated with bags, and beaten to extract confessions. All the confessions were meticulously documented with notes and photos, which you can see if you visit Cambodia. The, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, Chum May, is deaf in one ear as a result of the electrocution. For those not immediately killed, the conditions were horrific. They had to ask a guard's permission to turn over while sleeping. If they didn't, they were whipped. Prisoners ate rats, crickets, and grasshoppers they caught because they went so hungry. They went to a toilet in a tin in the middle of a room, and if for some reason it was spilled over, they had to lick the mess off the floor. They actually ran out of burial sites around the prison, so they trucked people into the countryside. Also at the facility, medical experiments were performed. They wanted to garner some knowledge of human anatomy because they'd killed all the doctors. Prisoners were injected into their bloodstream coconut milk, which killed them. They were also bled out to see how long they could survive without any blood. Some had their rib cage opened up and some just had their organs removed without anesthetic to see what would happen. And obviously they died and I could have told them that for free. S21 was just a microcosm of what happened across Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot in trying to bring the country to year zero. It wasn't actually until the end of 1978 where Pol Pot was revealed as the leader of the country. His own family found out when a portrait of Pol Pot was placed in public buildings. So imagine that. You sat down in your collective eating hall for your daily ration of rice after an 18-hour shift working in the rice fields. And on the wall, the soldiers have placed a portrait revealing that your brother is the man that's arranged the death of a quarter of the country. The fact that he was almost anonymous, they had the code names, brother number one, brother number three, etc., to the extent where his own family wasn't even aware of his role. This is one of the very few dictatorships we've met where we, we don't have that cult of personality. We saw it with Ho Chi Minh, we saw it with Lenin, we saw it with Castro and Duvalier, we've seen it with a number of dictators we've looked at. With Pol Pot, it was the opposite. And he was once asked that question, why, why did you change your name so many times and why, do, why don't we see images of you? And he actually acknowledged to the interviewer, now maybe it's what the interviewer wanted to hear, but he did acknowledge to the interviewer was that if, if he was able to retain his anonymity, then it would be more difficult to hold him responsible for the rougher elements of the regime. 
that is one area where his behaviour as a dictator is different to so many of the other dictators that we've met. He still wanted to have the opportunity to hide from all the, the evil things that he orchestrated. The cult of personality existed around the organisation itself. So the, the Angkor, they called it in Cambodian, was the omnipresent and all-knowing body and that organisation, like George Orwell's 1984 Big Brother, it was always watching, instilled a godlike fear into the population. Luckily, Pol Pot's regime does come to an end. As Unqueen mentioned, from 1976, there were border clashes with Vietnam, and the Sino-Soviet split, which was the breaking of political relations between China and the Soviet Union, created a lot of difficulties in the region. So China was back in Cambodia, and the Soviet Union backed Vietnam, but China didn't want to risk a war with the Soviet Union, so it didn't want to intervene in the war between Vietnam and Cambodia. So in 1978, Vietnam invades Cambodia and formed a new government in its image. Pol Pot fled to the jungle in the north that borders Thailand, and the Khmer Rouge controlled that territory until 1982. After the Vietnamese invasion and forced Pol Pot and his cronies back into the hills. For a while, the US still wanted to give them support, trying to see them as a, as a buffer against the Vietnamese. But even the CIA realised eventually they'd been backing, backing the wrong horse. But while Pol Pot was back in the hills with his cronies, he was still trying to involve himself in national affairs. One of the stories is that he negotiated with the Thai government to give away all the mineral rights for the region to allow all the the Thai companies to come in and exploit the region while the Khmer Rouge was still fighting their guerrilla war in the jungles. So he continued to order the deaths of high-ranking officials within the party, and he was eventually placed under house arrest by Tam Mok, one of his henchmen, who promised to give him up to the Americans to stand trial for his crimes. Unfortunately, Pol Pot died in his sleep, and his body was cremated three days later, and it's rumoured that he actually committed suicide because he didn't want to be turned over to the Americans. Now that rumour, that sounds reasonable. The other element of his death, a very inglorious death, that his uh, funeral pyre was made out of car tyres to make sure that his body could be burnt. So the legacy of Pol Pot, just a man who committed a great deal of atrocities against his own people and the callousness with which he did that and the lack of remorse is astonishing. There is interviews with Pol Pot decades after his rule, and he says, everything I did, I did for my country. One of the things that really enabled the Khmer Rouge to press their regime was a strong feeling of nationalism in Cambodia, very conscious of being, firstly, having been a French colony, and secondly, being between Thailand on one side and Vietnam on the other, as Scott described the geography. But always very conscious to protect their national identity as much as they possibly could. Unfortunately, that came at a cost, as we've heard. And while the population was starving, their leaders were fat and bloated. They weren't starving. It was the population that was starving. Some rice was even exported to other countries, despite the fact that so many Cambodians were starving to death. So while Pol Pot escaped justice, the man who orchestrated the S-21 concentration facility, he was placed on trial by the UN and found guilty. This is codenamed Dutch. One of the defendants in the eventual war crimes trial, when I say eventual, we're talking that this took until 2011. One of the defendants was Yang Sari. He'd been foreign minister under Pol Pot, just happened to be his brother-in-law. However, by that stage, they were old and infirm and even putting people in in jail for 35 years wasn't really going to be seen as as much of a punishment. The sad thing is the the Cambodian people are still being punished today. Um, Landmines everywhere as a result of the invasions. And one of the most scary elements of the landmines is that Cambodia, by its very geography, a lot of low-lying areas... And when they get floods from the monsoons, um, the landmines move around in the floods. So um, very slowly there's work on trying to remove the landmines, but no indication of how many they are or exactly 
where they all are. So that punishment of the Cambodian people continues continues today and will continue for a long time in the future with the horror of all the landmines that were laid back in the 70s. The other consequence of rain and monsoons is that not only do the landmines shift in position, but it reveals more dead bodies when the soil and, and mud is washed away, which is a regular reminder of the of the horror that many Cambodians lived through. The other consequence of the regime that is ongoing is with all the educated people killed, the economy still suffers as a result without an, a well-educated populace. So it's time to decide a winner between these two dictators, Ho Chi Minh and Pol Pot. Uncle Ian, I don't think this one's too close. Scott, I, I think you're right. Um, we've looked with our other episodes at historical significance and we've looked at biggest, baddest, meanest. I think the historical significance of Ho's achievements in Vietnam are far outweighed by the brutality of the Khmer Rouge. Ho Chi Minh, despite the repression under his regime, was not in the same category as what the Khmer Rouge achieved under Pol Pot's leadership. Almost everything I've read about Pol Pot describes him and all his cronies as, as just pure monsters and maniacs, and we don't have a contest here. I agree. I mean, Ho Chi Minh achieved a lot. He's very significant as a historical figure for Vietnam and changed the way that the Western world viewed conflicts around the world and their involvement in the affairs of other countries. But as you say, all of that is completely outweighed by the brutality of the Pol Pot regime. So congratulations to Pol Pot. Ho Chi Minh, you've been eliminated from the tournament. Pol Pot remains in the contest to be crowned history's biggest dictator. And he might do quite well in this tournament. I, I, I think you're right. Um, tragically, he exhibits a lot of the behaviours that we've seen in other dictators that we've studied so far and, and certainly sets a benchmark for horror. So that concludes today's episode. Our first episode recording in the same room and uh, I hope everyone's enjoyed it as much as I have, being able to see Uncle Ian lean into that microphone and drop some knowledge on us and for me to be able to share with, with him some invaluable information about Kanye West. Next week, we are headed to Turkey. We've got Enver Pasha up against Erdogan. This is our first dictator who's currently in power. I've got some great stuff on Erdogan. I'm very excited for this. If you'd like to contact us about today's episode or suggest future dictators, you can reach us at libertydiespodcast at gmail.com. Our Twitter account is at libertydiespod. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Thanks, Scott.